Nehemiah seems obscure. It seems a little bit irrelevant. And so let me tell you why we're going to spend the next three months together as a church in this obscure Old Testament ancient book of Nehemiah. I truly believe that God is calling our church, Hope, into a season of renewal. A season of deepening dependence on God. A season of deepening prayer, deepening worship, uh, greater risks, contending with God instead of settling for status quo. And this has been on my radar. It's been on my heart really since March. And I think we're on the very edge, the thin razor edge of this action of renewal. And Nehemiah, friends, is all about those things. And so for the next three months, we're going to get to know this book inside and now. We're going to lean into this book. We're going to enact this book as a community. Uh, and We will live it out. So let's just pray for a moment before we start our study. Lord, we are here eager to hear your word. And if we're not, make us. Speak because your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about eight years ago, a small group of families gathered around our living room every single Sunday evening, and we called it a launch team. Some of you are out here right now, and you are in our living room for that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We started very simple. We started with maybe a Bible study and maybe a meal, and then we added a few songs And kind of brick by brick, we started adding things. Then we added Children's Church. It was in our detached garage, and my wife Josie led it. Do you remember that? And then we moved out of our living space. Our vision was to build and build and build until eventually we would go public. And then we did. We actually went public with what we were doing. And we met in a hotel conference room. So this is it. You can hardly see it in the light. And I can admit this now, I really can, I did not know what I was doing. (laughs) What I did know, and what my wife knew, Josie, is that God had called us to start a church. So what I needed, and what I felt I needed at that time, was some kind of building manual. How do I plan a church? How do we start a church, God? Well... Is there some kind of book that's been out there? Is there some kind of book that has sort of uh, been given to church planters like us? And so eight years ago, when we were meeting in our living room, I thought it'd be cool to sort of walk through Nehemiah. And here was my thinking. Nehemiah has a lot of good leadership lessons. Nehemiah is really this man who God called to sort of start something and to renew something. And it it sort of culminates uh, after team leadership and team building. It sort of culminates into this Beautiful eruption of worship, public worship. And so I thought, hey, there's our manual. There's our manual. The problem was, and I can see it crystal clear today, that when we read Nehemiah this way, we miss the heart of the book. I think all those leadership lessons are in there as we'll, as we'll encounter them throughout the course of the next three months. 
I think there's all kinds of things we can glean, but it's not an instruction manual. The Bible is not an instruction manual. Isn't that how we often treat the Bible? We go to the Bible as sort of a book of rules for living with stories to sort of illustrate those rules. But the truth is, the Bible is the exact opposite. The Bible is the story of God's grace renewal. And the rules sort of find their context in God's grace, God acting in history. That's what the Bible is. And Nehemiah is the same exact way. So the Bible, I want you to sort of think of this in your mind, because this will be coming back to this over and over again in our time in Nehemiah. The Bible tells the true story of God making home, of God making home with us, making a house for his name and for his glory and for his fame. The Bible is the story, mark this, the story of God making home. And Nehemiah, which we're going to study, is a very important chapter in that great story. Of God making home. And that's the beautiful, scandalous message of Nehemiah. It is far better than leadership lessons from some Old Testament dude. No, it is the message, it is the story of God's scandalous grace. God who is holy, making home with an unclean and an unholy and a sinful and a full of baggage people. That is what Nehemiah is all about. That's the heartbeat of Nehemiah. It's a book of renewal. It's a book of grace renewal. And so, for the next three months, Hope is going to get to know Nehemiah as it was intended. As a chapter in God's greater story of grace renewal. Okay? So, before we dig into the details of Nehemiah, which is in your laps, I know, uh, before we really get into that, and before we really dig into chapter 1, what I think we should do for this first morning in this new series is to get the big story locked into our mind. Do you remember what the big story of the Bible is? I said it about a minute ago. It's God making home. God making home. And so this morning, we're going to look at this story from Genesis to Revelation. And then we're going to find how Nehemiah fits into that greater story. You can sort of divide this story out however you want, but I would like to do it with seven chapters. Take a look behind me. These seven chapters, chapter one of Eden, chapter two of exile, chapter three, building, chapter four, exile again, chapter five, rebuilding. And there's where we find our book. Chapter six, Jesus and chapter seven, a new house. And so let's just start with chapter one. The first chapter of God's great story begins with creation. It's in the book of Genesis. Think about this for just a second. God triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit does not need to create anything. Perfectly content in his triune nature. But he does. He creates the cosmos and he puts people, he puts humans into it. Out of overflow, not need. Out of gratuitous overflow, not need. And then he places Adam and Eve in a garden. A garden of Eden. 
Why? You ever wondered why? You ever asked yourself why? Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 gives us a hint at the answer. It says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so what you have in this first picture of this first chapter is you have a portrait of God making home with his people. He's walking among them. He's drawing near to them. This cosmos that he created, he created it and he made us into it. And then he creates, in a sense, in that garden, his first home, his first temple. His presence was there. And that's chapter one. That's chapter one of this great story. The Garden of Eden was God's home. And it was the first temple. If you think about it, it was a garden temple. And this is why the temple, as we fast forward a little bit, just for a moment, the temple, Israel's temple, King Solomon's temple, even the tabernacle, which was sort of a tent version of the temple, even that was sort of designed by God himself to refer to that garden. And so maybe you know this, but there was a lampstand in the temple shaped like a tree. Shaped like the tree of life in the garden. This is why the temple would have wood carvings of flowers, palm trees, pomegranates. To look like the garden. This is why the temple's entrance was towards the east, like the garden. This is why it was covered in precious stones. Like the garden. And I could go on. Really, I could go on. There's amazing details. The temple had three parts, just like Eden. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, straight up calls Adam a priest. And God calls us a kingdom of priests. So, chapter one, God making home. The second chapter of God's story is... Tragic, Because our parents, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and they are exiled out of home. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer could Adam and Eve stand in the presence of God's home without feeling naked, without shame. And so this is chapter 2, exile. God made a home, and we said no thanks. And the story really could just stop right there and God would be just, wouldn't he? He would be just. If that just was the end of it, because he's holy and we simply ran away from home. But God pursues us. And this really is the heartbeat of the scriptures. It's God's pursuit of an exiled people. Okay? So, first, he calls Abraham, Abram, to himself, calls him Abraham, and then after hundreds of years of Abraham's people, of Abraham's family, suffering in a terrible, evil house of Pharaoh, what does God do? He rescues them out of that house. And after rescuing him, what does he tell them to do? Do you remember? 
build a house. Think about this. The book of Exodus in your Bibles. Half of it is a rescue story. The other half is an architecture plan. God is making home again. He wanted them to build a tabernacle, which was like a traveling temple, which was a traveling mini Eden. Where God would walk among his people. That's the tabernacle. Exodus 29, 44 through 46 says, I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I could live among them. Do you see it? So I'll ask the question. You can answer it now. You have the answer. Why did God rescue Israel? To make home among his people. That's the tabernacle, uh, which was a portable tent. And eventually God's home becomes more permanent. King Solomon would build a temple. And here's what happens when he completes the temple. It says this in scriptures. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord Filled the Lord's house. God is making a home among his people. Chapter 4. You would think that God's story would probably end with the tabernacle. With the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. But sadly, Israel, God's people reenacts. The sins of their parents, Adam and Eve. And they they rebel and they run away from home. And after many warnings through the prophets, like Isaiah, God essentially gives them what they wanted. Exile. Again. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 9 verse 1 summarizes it this way. Judah, which is God's people, was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. And then in 587 B.C., uh, the unthinkable happened. In 587 B.C., the unthinkable happened. These Babylonians destroyed, bit by bit, God's own house. They, uh, the army, so the prophet Jeremiah watched as the army uh, uh, broke the house down and carted everything off made of bronze, silver, and gold. And did you know God's house, it's bronze on the outside. The closer you get into his holy of holies, it gets more and more precious stones, just like the garden. of And they broke it down. And they carted it away. And if that doesn't scandalize you, because... Because you weren't living then. Back then, that was unthinkable. God's home. The scriptures indicate that they understood his home to be the very navel of the universe. The very axis of the cosmos. Why? Because that's where God, though not limited to his house, chose to draw near. Which takes us to chapter 5 of God's story. God's people are in exile. 
We're in chapter 4. We're in exile. But there's a few hints of hope in your Bibles during this time of exile. So, for instance, men and women like Daniel cried out this. So Daniel 9, 17 says this. Oh, our God. It's a prayer of Daniel. Oh, our God. Hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Your house is broken, God. Smile again upon it, he prays. Lord, smile again. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair, he cries. See how your city, your city, the city that bears your name, or your houses, look how it lies in ruins, he says. Daniel prays, we make this plea not because we deserve help. He knows that they deserve exile. But because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. For your own sake and for your own fame, God, do not delay, he prays. And this is happening while, while God's people are out. They're in exile. And he fi- finishes his prayer with these words. Oh my God, for your people and your city, bear your name. We have your name on us. Act. So the Lord shocks us again with his pursuit. He raises up a leader named Cyrus of Persia. He's not even an Israelite. He's he's from Persia. He raises up a leader named Cyrus who defeats Babylon and makes a proclamation across the whole world. It's actually reported on that, which you can see in London today. It's also in your Bibles. But that's kind of cool, too. What does he say? He says, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build his him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task. And may the Lord your God be with you. This is why we have the book of Nehemiah. Because what happens after this Cyrus proclamation is people who are in exile, God's people who have forgotten even what the temple should look like after so many years, what they start doing is they start heading back. They're like, the king told us, let's go. And the first person to go was these these great names, Zerubbabel. Okay, Zerubbabel. I won't quiz you later. Zerubbabel. He goes first. After him, Ezra, which is a cool name, I guess, by today's standards. I don't hear children being named Zerubbabel as much as Ezra. And then third in line is Nehemiah, and he finishes the job. So Ezra sort of helps with building the house itself, and Nehemiah comes later to sort of finish up everything. And the end of Nehemiah, as we will see, is sort of a culmination of God's people being reestablished and God's house being rebuilt. End of story, right? No. No. Now get this. This is crazy. God's people settle down with this rebuilt house. But grow cold. And so after 400 years of what felt like God's utter and complete silence, 
God draws near to make home amongst His people in an even more profound way. Listen to how John, humble John, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, listen to how John tells the story. The Word became human and made His home among us. There in John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus is God making home with His very Son. It is Jesus is a walking temple. And do you know what He does in His life and ministry? He basically makes it so that we can be united to Him and thus become part of Him. The walking temple. So that in the New Testament, the, the, the writers of the New Testament, like Peter, who, who failed Jesus so many times, the walking temple, but who received grace and grace. It's like Jesus saying, Peter, I, I'm making home with you. I know you're a screw. You see what's happening? I'm uniting you to myself. And so Peter would write in his letters, we are not literal stones. We are spiritual stones being built up into a temple. The Holy Spirit, after Jesus was risen, after He ascended, the Holy Spirit was given to His people so that even now, as we meet here today, we are in God's home. Why? Because He makes home with us. We are His temple. We are His house. Jesus is the temple. And He's brought us to Himself. Isn't that amazing? So that's the story of the Bible. And you think that's where it ends, right? It doesn't. It gets better if you can believe it. Because John, the same John, is given a vision, a foretaste of the final chapter, which we're not in yet. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's a, there it is. Behold, the home is here. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he continues, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Finally, God makes home. Eden is restored. So what does this mean for us as a church as we begin our journey through Nehemiah? It means three things, briefly. First of all, it means this. As we study Nehemiah, you need to know that this book in the Old Testament is all about grace renewal. As I said earlier, there are many important lessons on leadership. There are many important things that we can glean uh, sort of about administration. I think Nehemiah is a very popular book for churches that have building campaigns. And just so you know, we don't have one happening right now. That would be great if we did, but we don't have one right now. That's not why we're doing Nehemiah. I don't have some ace in my sleeve to tell you. No, why are we doing Nehemiah? Because I want our church to be renewed. I, I want revival to happen. And that's what Nehemiah is about. Number two, Nehemiah is all about Jesus. It is. 
Jesus said to his disciples, he said, all of the scriptures point to me. And their hearts burned when they heard that. Because now they could look at some of these chapters of God making home. And they could say, oh my gosh, you are the temple in flesh. And you are drawing me to yourself. And so they'll read a book like Nehemiah and they would see all these things that were leading up to and culminating in Jesus. And so we're going to read Nehemiah as a book about Jesus. Okay? Nehemiah's chapter 4 in God's story. We're in chapter 6. So we can't read Nehemiah and just sort of like pretend we're not in chapter 6. Do you understand? We need to read chapter 4 in light of chapter 6. Which brings us to number 3. Nehemiah is our story. You know, Paul, he loved this. He, he would talk about this a lot. He would say, by faith, you are now Abraham's sons. Do you know what that means? That means if you lay hold of Jesus, then this story is now your story. And the word that he would use it was a gardening metaphor, engrafting. He said that you are, now, you are now engrafted onto the olive branch. You are now part of this story so that these are your ancestors. Which is an amazing thing. So we're going to read it as our story. And then we are going to reenact Nehemiah as a church in ways that are appropriate for chapter 6. So for instance, we're not going to build an altar here at the Metro School. Did you know that? We're not going to do that. We're not going to build a wall that surrounds Jerusalem. We're not going to do that. Okay? We don't need priests. We have a high priest. We don't need a sacrifice on the altar. Jesus already did that once and for all. So there's ways to reenact chapter 4, Nehemiah, as chapter 6, inhabitants. And we're going to explore that as we go. But what Nehemiah will do profoundly, and what I'm looking forward to most, Nehemiah will orient us as a people who are heading somewhere. Okay? So look at this. Chapter 4 of God's people, they're going back to a broken down Israel to build God's house. Because God is making home. And as they do, it says in Nazareth, it says that they finished the building of this new house. This new house for God. And it says the young people were celebrating and singing and dancing. And it says the elders of the community, those who are older, those with wisdom, those who actually experienced the, the temple, the Solomon's, Solomon's temple. Guess what they were doing? They were weeping. They were weeping because they were like, that's. I don't know what to tell you. It's just not. The story's not over. The story's not over. That's chapter four. We're in chapter six and we can do the same thing. We can celebrate because Jesus is our temple, but we can also weep because he has not come to bring in the full house. Do you see it? So what that will do is that will make us as a people of God into what Walter, uh, Walker Percy calls hints of hope. Hints of hope. We are going to be as a church, as we walk through this book, we're going to become hints of hope to, our, to each other here as we sit. Hints of hope to our colleagues, to our friends who don't know hope. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about Jesus coming to make all things right. We're going to be hints of hope. That's what it means for us. Just as an orientation before we dig in uh, to, to Nehemiah in the coming weeks. Now, what does it mean 
for you. Let's just close here. Quite simply, and don't miss this. The story of God that we read in the Bible means that God wants to be with you. He's holy to be sure. And that is why he requires sacrifice. But don't you see? He provides the sacrifice. Because he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. The real you. The you with all your stuff. The you with all your issues. The you with all your junk. The you that you would rather hide. He wants to be with you. And sometimes when we talk about the Bible, the impression that we give and the impression that we get is that God is running away from us. And we are chasing Him. But it's the exact opposite. We are in our sin running away from God, but He is in pursuit of us. He is making home with us. God desires to be with you. And you can be with Him. You just lay hold of Jesus, the true temple, the walking presence of God.